You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, my name is John Hittinger. I'm a professor at the Air Force Academy, a civilian professor, and I'm here to talk about modern philosophy. This is an important course for your studies. On the other hand, you'll find that there are things in modern philosophy that are a great challenge to the faith, but they are challenges which we must meet head on. And as we'll see this thought unfold, I think the time is right for a sustained Christian and Catholic look at modern philosophy and dealing with the challenges. The first thing I'd like to do, though, is make some acknowledgments. I would like to thank Professor McInerney, one of my mentors when I was an undergraduate at Notre Dame for teaching me Thomas Aquinas, and of course, Joe Evans, who showed me the thought of Jacques Maritain, who will be one of the guiding lights for my reading of modern philosophy. I'd also like to thank the professors at Catholic University, Jude Doherty, Richard Kennington, Tom Prufer, Father Wallace. All of these men I have learned much from, and I make my attempts to convey to you some of the things I've discovered about modern philosophy and how to relate it to your study of St. Thomas and Aristotle. I think just for starters, I would like to go back to Jacques Maritain's book, Introduction to Philosophy, and just to recall some basic truths. I think Maritain's Introduction to Philosophy and Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture would be fine beginning points or reference points to know what the fullness of philosophic wisdom is. In Maritain's book, Introduction to Philosophy, he has a series of conclusions defining what philosophy is. I'd just like to read some of these and then we'll start to situate what the challenges of modern philosophy are. Maritain says as his first conclusion that philosophy is the science which by the natural light of reason studies the first causes or highest principles of all things. In other words, the science of things and their first causes insofar as these belong to the natural order. The importance of philosophy then is that it uses reason. It draws on human experience. It tries to make sense out of our life and experience and put these into intelligible principles, patterns, and various propositions about important things. Now, traditionally, philosophy has been divided into three parts. The logic, which is the introduction to philosophy, a study of method, as the moderns will come to call it. It's concerned about the mind's grasp of truth. The second part is theoretical or speculative philosophy. It studies the being of things, and I know you have been studying philosophy of nature, philosophical anthropology, metaphysics, philosophy of religion, all those wonderful courses that ICU has lined up for you. And third is practical philosophy, which studies the good of human acts. It includes ethics and political philosophy primarily. Now we'll see that modern philosophy does essentially redefine all three branches of philosophy. That's why I'd like to move on to a third conclusion of Maritain's book. It's conclusion three, which is that theology, or the science of God as he's been made known by revelation, is superior to philosophy. Philosophy is subject to it neither in its premise or its methods, but in its conclusions over which theology exercises a control, a negative rule of philosophy. We will take our bearings by our faith, but faith won't tell us 
where the fallacy of the argument is. Faith won't tell us why this has been badly conceptualized. That is the task of the philosopher. So what is modern philosophy? And how can we start out this journey? And why should we start out the journey of studying these great minds from the 16th to the 18th century? What we will define as modern now, we will locate starting with the end of the 15th century with Machiavelli and Copernicus moving through Bacon, Descartes, Hobbes, Pascal, Locke, Spinoza, Hume, Rousseau, and Kant. This is a lot of philosophy to take in. It is a new way of thinking. And it's something that we will do our best to hit the highlights and look at some key text and hopefully get your interest up to go back and read some of these texts, which are, I must say, at times very dense and impenetrable. It is one of the great things about Aristotle as the philosopher of common sense that although he's not easy, you can get a foothold in Aristotle. You can see the basic experience or ideas and human phenomenon, natural phenomenon to which he refers. With the moderns, on the other hand, you do have these new ways of conceptualizing, at times arbitrary and abstract, and it is difficult to make your way through them. But I hope with some of the keys I'll provide you, you can start to make sense of these important thinkers. Now, one reason we need to study well the moderns is that the modern philosophers do define the culture in which we live. They do define the historical struggle and point at which we find ourselves. I think maybe one good point of orientation to begin with is to think about the Vatican Council's pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. The very title shows the importance of understanding our situation. As much as we take for our mentor, Thomas Aquinas, and know the great synthesis that he achieved in which we know is a living Thomism, we must understand the historical situation and intellectual challenges in which we live. I'm going to read to you some of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. This is from the opening section. It says, the council fathers say that the council yearns to explain to everyone how to conceive of the presence and activity of the church in the world today. Therefore, the council focuses its attention on the world of men, the world which is the theater of man's history, the air of his energies, his tragedies, his triumphs. To carry out this task, the council fathers say, they must scrutinize the signs of the times. That phrase, which has been abused by some, has a good meaning, that the signs of the times indicate what we are dealing with. And as the council fathers say, not to reduce the gospel to modern philosophy or the modern mind, but to interpret them in light of the gospel. But we've got to look at these signs. Basically, I think the Council Fathers do hit the core that I will elaborate for you as to what modern philosophy is all about and what its effects are. Let me read on. It says, today the human race is involved in a new stage of history. Profound and rapid changes are spreading by degrees around the world, triggered by the intelligence and creative energies of man. These changes recoil upon him. We can speak of a cultural and social transformation, a crisis, because this transformation has brought serious difficulties in its wake. Thus, while man extends his power in every direction, he does not always succeed in subjecting it to his own welfare. That will be one of the keys of modern philosophy, which the Council Fathers recognize is this great unleashing of human power, a vision 
that begins with these moderns, Bacon and Descartes. We will revisit those first stirrings of the possibility of the increase in human power and how it was first conceived and the problems in how it was conceived and see how we can better interpret it. For example, the Council Fathers do go on to say many of our contemporaries are kept from accurately identifying permanent values and adjusting to these fresh discoveries. As a result, buffeted between hope and anxiety and pressing one another with questions about the present course of events, they are burdened down with uneasiness. They're looking for answers. Again, here is where the Catholic faith will help us and how understanding modern philosophy will help us be more effective witnesses and apostles. Finally, I would read to you the last part of the introduction, which says, the modern world shows itself at once powerful and weak, capable of the noblest deeds or the foulest. Before it lies the path to freedom or slavery, to progress or retreat, to brotherhood or hatred. Man is becoming aware that it is his responsibility to guide the forces which he has unleashed and which can enslave or minister to him. This is why he's putting questions to himself. We must put these questions to ourselves. We can't avoid these questions about human power, about the new capacity we have to control nature. Let's look at what modern philosophy is in its core outline, what the elements are, and how this hooks up with the church in the modern world. Then we will unfold some of these notions and our concluding session will be about the renewal of philosophy and human intelligence that is made possible through many of the philosophers who have returned to Thomas Aquinas and have used it to meet these challenges. Okay, to define modern philosophy, I think we should look at two main elements. What are the new things that emerged in the 1500s? Some of this I take from the thought of Leo Strauss, some from Jacques Maritain. But the core idea is that there is a new science of nature developing. At the same time, there is a new politics developing. The new science we can identify with Copernicus, Galileo. The new politics with Machiavelli. Later, Hobbes, Locke, and others. But the new thing, I need to elaborate some to see what happened. Because modern philosophy does not really go up against Catholic faith or even the philosophy and theology of Thomas Aquinas. It's really born in this lull of events. Etienne Gilson points out how scholasticism had spent itself with endless disputes and new interpretations with Occam and Scotus and there was a lack of confidence in the scholastic method and it just opened itself to the skeptical doubts of this new era. But I think we must say at the beginning that these moderns, these founders of modernity, are not dealing with real Thomism. They are not dealing with a muscular Thomism. Luther was not either. They were dealing with a watered-down, corrupt version. And that's why I think we'll see that the philosophy of Aquinas will help us gauge with a true measure what is sound in modern philosophy and what has gone off the deep end. Well, the new science and the new politics merge into what some have called the modern project. The modern project could be put into one phrase from the writings of René Descartes. And the one phrase is, 
that he has discovered a new science which will make us masters and owners of nature. That is the core of modern philosophy, is the discovery of new means using scientific methods and technology to aim at the mastery of nature for the relief of mankind. There is a kind of charity or beneficence claimed by these founders that they will be benefactors of mankind by this mastery of nature. So again, I want to fill in a little bit on these elements and then fast forward to why, as the Council Fathers have pointed out, now is a time that the modern project is being reevaluated. Why it's time to do some recovery of ancient truths and ancient philosophy. Again, let me just elaborate a little bit on these elements. The new science of nature. One could go read Galileo, one of his letters on sunspots or the starry messenger or any of his writings and see this new thing, which is the use of mathematics to give a more satisfactory explanation of some fundamental problems of natural philosophy. The two basic problems, of course, were number one, what is the geometric arrangement of the solar system? And the Copernican revolution, figuring out that the geocentric model did not work, was one of the great scientific revolutions. The other one, of course, is the discovery of inertia and the laws of falling bodies to which, again, we attribute Galileo's genius and brought into complete focus by Newton. The historic origins of the new science certainly go deep into the Middle Ages. Father Wallace's book on causality and scientific explanation and his studies of Galileo show that these certainly didn't come out of the thin air. But we do see some new things developing, these new methods the new methods of mathematical analysis, the emphasis upon empirical histories. This is something Francis Bacon urged, that we have less speculation about nature and more fact-finding, more catalogs of natural phenomena. In these new methods promised great things and have made great discoveries. The dangers that we will see right at the beginning is that they can tend to be abstractive. Because of the mathematical intelligibility, we'll see that modern philosophy emphasizes the clear and distinct ideas of mathematics. There's a kind of abstraction, a loss of the sense of the real. Jacques Maritain will say that modern man is not ontological because he's lost this sense of being, the being of things, but we live in the abstractions or scientific signs. The other danger of the new science is that it can be reductive. This is what the modern struggle with, is the reduction of life to mechanism, the reduction of the human to the animal and mechanism. Again, it's a problem that has plagued modern philosophy and I think has come in to greater criticism because of these problems. Now, the new science itself would not be enough to explain the modern project. There's another key element, and that element is the new politics to which we must trace back to Machiavelli. If you take Machiavelli's book, The Prince, and look at two key chapters, chapter 15 and chapter 25. I think you'll see one of the underlying assertions about the modern project. Basically, it's this. Machiavelli says he has a new science of human beings which will be realistic. He says, opposed to those who imagined republics, like Plato, or St. Augustine's City of God. He will study man as he is and not as he ought to be. And how he claims man is, 
is a passionate and selfish individual. And Machiavelli's recommendation is then that one must learn how to do evil, that one can't be good. As Maritain will later say, the great Machiavellian lies are that the just man must be weak and that evil and evil means are necessary and lead to success. I think upon reflection and history, we can show those are not well-founded notions, but there's a daring, there's an appeal, a rashness about this Machiavellian revolution that had its appeal. As a matter of fact, Machiavelli emphasized the extreme conditions, the exception to the rule, to try to work up this new daring or sense of mastery. And of course, where this ends, maybe it's the most important passage to understand the modern project, is in chapter 25 of The Prince, in which he says, we must conquer fortune. That the problem with the ancients was that they acquiesced in chance or divine providence and thought that life had many elements which were out of their control. And Machiavelli says we can whittle that down so that more is within human power. And with one of the shocking images starting modern philosophy, Machiavelli said fortune is like a woman who can be controlled by the daring man who will knock her down. Again, just a violent image about the beginnings that we must assert human power against nature, against political matters, and of course they claim this benefaction that by the discovery of this increase in human power we will be able to make life better, to bring true peace, happiness to mankind. Now putting these two elements together, on the one hand the new science of nature, of Galileo and Copernicus, and on the other hand the new politics of Machiavelli, we've got to look to Descartes. That's why in our next lecture we will spend a lot of time reading Descartes and trying to understand Descartes. He is rightly considered the founder of modern philosophy, but one has to understand the streams he's bringing together, which are the new science of nature, the new politics of Machiavelli. We could describe this as the modern project, again, just to summarize here and move on. It is the mastery of nature for human relief. I think it could be worth even looking at that passage now to get a feel for the great excitement of promise that Descartes saw at the end of his discourse on method in part six, the last chapter of the discourse on method. He will outline this new project. Let me just read to you here, in which he said we will become the masters and owners of nature. He goes over his education, trained by Jesuits, and the uselessness of his liberal arts education, and his own studies in mathematics and science. And he ends by saying, I believe that I could not keep concealed without sinning against the law which obliges us to procure the general good of mankind. They cause me to see it's possible to attain knowledge which is very useful in life and that instead of that speculative philosophy which is taught in the schools, we may find a practical philosophy by means of which knowing the force and the action of fire, water, air, the stars, heavens, and all other bodies that surround us, as distinctly as we know the craft of our artisans, we can employ them in all those uses to which they are adapted, and thus render ourselves the masters and possessors of nature. This is not merely to be desired, with a view to the invention of an infinity of arts and crafts to enjoy without trouble the fruits of the earth and all the good things which are to be found there, but principally because it brings about 
the preservation of health, which is without a doubt the chief blessing and foundation of all other blessings. That passage is the flag of the modern project. That encapsulates, I think, both the promise and the hazards of modern philosophy. The abandonment of speculative philosophy, this merging of the practical with the speculative, will be a very important thing for trying to track modern philosophy. The idea that nature could be seen as the way a craftsman has his craft, that is, as a machine or something made, so that we can make or unmake nature. And again, this goal of mastery is a whole new way of conceiving the relation of the philosopher to the city. You know, if you just briefly think about the Apology of Socrates, when he came into the courtroom, he didn't stand up and say, support me and my fellow philosophers because we will make you masters of nature and make your life easier and extend your health and life. Socrates, quite the opposite, being the gadfly he is, said, I'm not here to talk to you about your bodies or your money or your honor, but I want to talk about virtue and truth and wisdom and the best possible state of your soul, for which people, of course, didn't want to be bothered, so they put him to death. Now, Descartes was afraid of some persecution, but I think you see the new appeal of modern philosophy is that it will appeal not to the higher things, but to power and to the benefits of a technological society. So we are living in the world of Descartes. We are living in the world that he envisioned. We are living in the world that his philosophy cleared the way for. And that's why, like I said, we will have to do some close reading of Descartes. Fast forward to the middle of the 20th century and up to the present. These problems of the modern project have becoming more and more apparent. And I'd just like to review for you and point out and mention some names. It's just a long, distinguished list of philosophers and writers who have seen the need to reevaluate the modern project. Not, of course, to turn the clock back. None of us can do that. But to reevaluate the basic principles, try to take stock of where we are. I mean, one could just take as the most dramatic form of the modern crisis would be the development of the atomic bomb. Alexander Solzhenitsyn actually goes back even further and talks about the use of poison gas in World War I as a sign of the death of the modern world. That is, that we've come to see that unbounded optimism and dream has the dark side and again, may make us go back to these founding texts, for example, the one I just read you, and say maybe the chief benefit is not health, but it's what Socrates said. It's virtue, truth, and the best possible state of your soul. And not to forget that. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Nobel Prize winning Russian author, I would just read to you from his Templeton address. He said, The failings of human consciousness, deprived of its divine dimensions, have been a determining factor in the major crimes of this century. The first of these was World War I. The war took place when Europe, bursting with health and abundance, fell into a rage of self-mutilation that could not but sap its strength for a century or more, and perhaps forever. And the only possible explanation for this war is a mental eclipse that the leaders lost an awareness of the supreme power above them. Only a godless embitterment could have moved ostensibly Christian states to employ poison gas. The same flaw of consciousness was manifested after World War II when the West yielded 
to the satanic temptation of a nuclear umbrella. The idea, of course, is that we've unleashed this power, but we seem to lack the moral principle and fortitude to give it proper direction. John Paul II, of course, would be another one of the critics of the modern project. Not root and branch, but in its basic spiritual principle or effects, he talks about the culture of death, about the consumerism that has taken over Western societies, connected with this loss of respect for life. Again, I think we can trace these back to Descartes and Hobbes and Locke, at least to see where the principles of their philosophy left out some key things, distorted important truths. So our strategy, of course, will not be to say we just eliminate from our minds or from culture. We can't do that, Locke or Hobbes, but to take what is there and try to recast it in a way that has a more fitting philosophical basis. Another critic would be C.S. Lewis. I think his book, The Abolition of Man, I would put high on your list of reading as an evaluation of the modern project. The title itself shows the danger to which he is looking, The Abolition of Man in which he says explicitly that man's mastery of nature turns out to mean man's mastery of man with the help of nature as an instrument. I think he wrote this in the 50s. He talks about electronics and propaganda, contraceptives and eugenics, drugs and mind control, the discovery of atom and new weapons. The mastery of nature, Lewis says, means the mastery of some men over other men. And that's part of the crisis of the modern age. Now Lewis does go on to explain. He talks about Francis Bacon and Descartes and this problem of reductionism. In order to master nature, Lewis says, we must first reduce nature to the empirical and quantifiable. This allows it to be manipulated. Technology strives for efficiency, predictability, repeatability. And Lewis says, just think if we apply that to human beings, there's going to be this inevitable abolition of man. So the defense of human integrity, personal dignity, freedom, these have become now the defense of these great Catholic and Christian thinkers, I think, on the forefront. And that's why we'll need to return to them, I think, at the end. Some others I could mention would be Joseph Pieper, the book Leisure, the Basis of Culture, I think is one of the best explanations of why the ancient preference for speculative philosophy over the practical one is important. Pieper says in that book that man's real wealth consists in knowing and knowing what is and the whole of what is. And that's more important than the mastery of nature. I could mention also here Leo Strauss, one of the great influences upon political philosophy in post-war America. And he says the crisis of our time, again, is rooted back in this modern philosophy. His classic book, Natural Right and History, in which he opens talking about the Declaration of Independence, the fundamental truth that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he says, why have we come to doubt this? Why has the West become uncertain of its purpose, Strauss says? We realize our principles of action have no support in nature or God. And so, he says, we have become paralyzed. We can't act as responsible beings. He says, we see the slow degradation of liberal democracy into a permissive society. 
and this uncertainty about our basic principle. This indicates the crisis of the age. And he says part of it does go back to the mechanistic philosophy, which underlies the moderns. As much as John Locke tries to combine the mechanistic philosophy with a respect for rights, there is some underlying dynamic that undoes that respect for rights. So again, Strauss's thought here, his project is to recover the ancient truths, to go back to Aristotle and Plato, to revisit this quarrel of the ancients and the moderns, and to try to come back to a better understanding of political life, but through political life, I think, the rest of the human things. Finally, I would mention Jacques Maritain as one of the great philosophers who has studied deeply the modern age and sees the crisis of our times in terms of the crisis of humanism. I recommend to you the first chapter also of Maritain's book, Integral Humanism, in which he talks about the modern age and its desire to develop a humanistic philosophy. And that was actually its battle cry, to develop humanism against the church, against the ancient philosophy, that the moderns would have the true humanism. And it is Maritain's contention as he looks through those philosophers and looks at the crisis of our time. He began writing this back in the 30s that the modern age is not able to sustain a true humanism because of its basic philosophic principles. The outline that he will give is that we find ourselves needing a theocentric humanism, that the problem of the moderns is that they developed an anthropocentric humanism, a humanism based upon just a human measure, excluding any respect for the higher principle. There's a passage of his I would like to read, again, to give you a sense for his concern and a point of orientation as we read through our modern philosophers. Maritain's notion of anthropocentric humanism, or what is now called secular humanism. You'll see our quarrel is neither with humanism nor what is secular. And that's what the Vatican II document on the church in the modern world, I think, has explained very well. Our quarrel is not with humanism, but the church recommends a humanism. Its quarrel is not with the importance of secular or temporal things. The church shows, especially in Vatican II, how those things must be sanctified. The problem, this combination of secular humanism, is probably better described, I think, in Maritain's terms as anthropocentric humanism. It's a humanism which defines man by excluding reference to the transcendent and the divine. That's the problem Solzhenitsyn was aiming at. It's the one Maritain thinks is the core, the core we see in Machiavelli and Descartes. The core we see going through into Spinoza, Hobbes. As much as Locke tries to reintroduce the transcendent, it'll be my argument that he fails to do so. And that by the time we get to the culmination of modern philosophy in Immanuel Kant, the transcendent and divine is reduced entirely to man's rational measure and nature. Maritain also says part of this anthropocentric humanism is that human happiness is to be found in this world alone. It grounds the modern project to master nature, to be lord of the exterior nature and reign over it by means of technological procedures. This is quoting Maritain. To create a material world where man will find, following Descartes' promises, a perfect happiness. End of quote. Maritain at times calls it the crisis, being a good Frenchman, of bourgeois life that you see this particularly in middle-class Western societies. 
He says, it's become a cult of earthly enrichment where economic life absorbs every other field of activity. He says, our society has come to love things more than persons. John Paul has learned a lot, I think, from Jacques Maritain. By excluding the eternal and spiritual value, he says, the bourgeois have only material goods for private consumption and no basis for a common good. By excluding a transcendent measure for human action, libertarianism, and mere mutually agreed to restrictions on liberty are the only rules for behavior we have. And so in this weird world, we now see Larry Flint can become a hero of liberty and the First Amendment. And we can no longer distinguish what belongs in the gutter from what is noble and a good human aspiration. So, Maritain, I think, put us on to this challenge, the exigencies of the Catholic thinker in the 20th century and now coming into the new millennium. Maritain, I think, is still a great guide for us, incorporating a sound philosophy of human rights and see the difference between the modern foundation, which is not able to sustain it, and a foundation in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, realizing that God is the center of man, open to the higher truths of metaphysics, open to the higher truths of revelation, of grace, to summarize, or to put to a point here, Maritain thinks our challenge is to rescue the many good notions of modern philosophy from the philosophical errors in which they have been put. And it's not to turn back the clock, but it's to take these new developments that define the modern age, the discoveries of mathematical science, the new self-consciousness of human dignity, the new discoveries of human power and mastery of nature. Maritain thinks all of these things contain core truths, but they have been put into a form of philosophy which doesn't do justice to those insights. And that's, again, why our project will be to read the modern philosophers, try to understand what they were discover and aiming at. And seeing if some truths can be rescued from them, put into forms, dealt with by, I think we've seen another great list of witnesses, the great capacity of Thomistic philosophy to expand, to absorb, to apply the old truths and principles to new situations and new discoveries. Much of this is being done right now by philosophers and scientists like Father Wallace, Father Yaki, and many others. And same way in the political order, the embracing of a true notion of freedom and human rights. So to look at modern philosophy, but with the critical eye, to look at it in light of this quarrel of ancients and moderns, and to see that the ancients have truth, superior truth, on some key points, is not to say, again, that we can go back or not face the challenges, but to see opportunities in what is now even being called a postmodern age. And a crisis which has people asking these questions about where have we gone wrong? Where have we gone wrong with these new weapons that are out of control? Where have we gone wrong with the destruction of the environment? Why do we have this phenomenon of degradation of human beings through technology or through mass entertainment or drug use? What's wrong? I think people are asking these questions can help us to 
look at the old and the new to supply a context or the principles that are missing. And I think in that way, provide the wisdom that the age is looking for. Now let me just say something then about the outline of what our studies will be. The first thing we must do is read René Descartes. So we will spend the next hour talking about his Discourse on Method and the Meditations on First Philosophy, the most important and founding documents of modern philosophy. We will then go on to look at some of the significance of Descartes' new project in ways that he either didn't fully reveal or didn't fully anticipate. One of them was actually concurrent with Descartes, but it would be the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes who, working with the similar notions of Descartes, establishes the first full philosophy of modern liberal democracy. We'll also then look in the more speculative or religious and metaphysical realm at Benedict Spinoza, one of the hardest philosophers to read, but whose vision of pantheistic unity is really one of the astounding aspects of the modern age, an aspect which is not often looked to, but I think it's what we would call a monistic view of nature and the world, which Spinoza puts into its most, I will say, articulate form, although Spinoza is a very hard philosopher to read. We will then end that first wave of modern philosophy by looking at a great Catholic thinker, Pascal, and see how Pascal managed to raise in Socratic fashion some of the problems and issues with the new philosophy, although he himself did not have the philosophic resources to deal with it and often goes off the deep end himself. I think we'll see in Pascal a true spirit of the human and reminding people about the limits. After looking at Pascal, we will then proceed on to who may be the second great founder of modern philosophy, and that is John Locke. John Locke's philosophy of science, he was a friend of Newton, by the way, and the new methods that he works out have a more broad appeal than Descartes' abstractive, rational deliberations. And certainly we know that Locke's political philosophy is the most successful and most influential form of moral and political philosophy that the modern age has seen. It has certainly influenced our country. It's one we need to know. Again, to know its strengths, to know its weaknesses, to know how Locke tried to put back together some of the elements of the ancient philosophy. But again, I will say, I think he failed to do it in a satisfactory manner. So the modern principle rolls on. To our next person, we will look at David Hume. Hume may be the most radical of the moderns. Hume took the principle of empiricism to its bitter end. And we'll see there's a kind of self-destruction of philosophy that Hume himself revels in. And we'll see how he does it and how he tries to recuperate and recover and use that to good effect. Then we'll look at Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His influence on moral thinking will be very decisive on Kant. And that will be the culminating hour, the fifth hour of our talks, or starting in the fourth into the fifth hour, will be on Kant. Kant is the great synthesizer of modern philosophy. Kant is the modern philosopher. Kant has brought together all the stirrings and strivings, probings and issues of modern philosophy into this uneasy synthesis in his great critiques of pure reason, critique of practical reason, and critique of judgment. 
These are books that cause all philosophy students many endless nights or at times even puts them to sleep, but they are the most important reference points for us to understand the great promise and achievement and limits of modern philosophy. And then, as I said, for our ending meditation for half an hour in analysis, I would like to look at the positive developments within the Thomistic tradition and others who have returned to the ancients to have really begun to develop a new philosophy for our time. Some very exciting developments that I think we'll see, ranging from, as I mentioned, John Paul II and his official reevaluation of Galileo to a closer look at Maritain and Strauss and C.S. Lewis and Alastair McIntyre and a number of very knowledgeable and persuasive thinkers who know their modern philosophy, face it squarely, and show how St. Thomas and his mentor, the philosopher Aristotle, are the guide we need for finding the wisdom to enter into this new postmodern age. So I think this exploration of modern philosophy will be a challenge to you. On the one hand, as I mentioned, because of the text, which are often dense and impenetrable, there is also a problem of interpreting some of these texts, and we won't have much time in these brief lectures to get into the subtleties of interpretation, trying to discover the author's intention, much of which occupies the scholars of modern philosophy. I mean, the big one, for example, would have to do with the religious orientation and beliefs of some of the founders of modernity, like Descartes. Was he a good Catholic or not? John Locke good Anglican or not. The point being not just in their personal practice, but in the substance of their thought. But I think if you follow along here, I will point out the key concepts, read to you some of the key text, and hope it can just start to open the way for you understanding what modern philosophy is and how it is at the root of the modern crisis and how we do have resources in our own intellectual traditions to deal with it and to criticize it and evaluate it in a constructive way. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.